about a year ago, I was watching a show on TV, and it was about these people who had strange but really interesting jobs. And one of the ones that I remember specifically was this couple who was responsible for going out and foraging in the woods and finding certain types of mushrooms and certain types of fungi to sell to high-end farm-to-table kind of restaurants. I didn't know that job existed to begin with. I just assumed there were mushroom farms somewhere. But they would go out into the forest and find this stuff. And it was so impressive because they would walk through miles and miles of forest and they would see all these different kinds of mushrooms, all these different kinds of fungi, and they could tell what they were. But not only did they know what they were and they knew their names, they were able to say, well, this one, if you eat it, it's going to make you sick for a couple weeks. And this one, if you eat it, it's probably going to kill you. And this one, you can eat it, but it doesn't taste very good, and so nobody wants to eat it. And then you have this one over here, and they would see it, and they'd be, this one is a good one to eat, and a lot of people like to eat it, but it doesn't get us a whole lot of money, and so it's not worth the, the space in our bag. And they would go and find the one they came after, these big chunks of mushrooms and fungus, and they would say, this is the delicacy. This is the one we want. This is the one that we're after. And they would take it back and they would sell it to these chefs and these restaurants and make money for a few months and then go out and do it again. And I've always been really jealous of people that can do that because I like being outside. I like hiking. I love mountain biking. And I want to be the kind of guy who can identify what tree I'm looking at and the kind of person who knows what you can eat and what you can't eat and what plants have medicinal value and which ones will make you break out in hives and try to kill you. I want to know all of that stuff, but I kind of want to know it instantly. And the problem is the people who are good at that, they spend time, they look at field guides and they read books about plants and about different kinds of animals and all these kind of things so that they can know the evidence so that they could see what kind of trees it is so that they could know what kind of properties it has, so that they could be able to evaluate and identify what they're looking at. And so until I get the urge to sit down and read books about trees, which so far hasn't really struck me deep in my core, I'll just stick with fruit trees because I can identify fruit trees. I don't need to know anything about what the bark looks like. I don't need to know anything about what the leaves look like. If I see an apple on a tree, I can feel fairly certain that it's an apple tree. If I see a blackberry in a bush, I can feel very certain that it's a blackberry bush. If I see a grape on a vine, probably a grapevine. Because these plants are easily identified by the kind of fruit that they produce. We've been looking through Galatians chapter 5 over the past few weeks. And we've been talking about the freedom that we have in Christ. How precious and beautiful that freedom is that if anyone who's put their faith in Christ, then they're a new creation. And we have this freedom that comes directly from God. And it's something that doesn't cost us anything. It's something that we don't have to pay for, but something that Jesus gave us freely as a gift. We've talked about the need and the responsibility to use that freedom well. Because we've been set free, we have the opportunity to use our freedom well to serve Christ or to use our freedom poorly to serve ourselves. And last week, we looked at how Paul showed these two factions inside of us that are warring over the use of our freedom. The flesh, which wants to pull us back into captivity, which wants to pull us back into sin, which wants to serve ourselves, and then the spirit that wants to pursue after Christ, wants to love Jesus, and wants to become who he's designed us to be, and wants us to use our freedom well. And Paul calls us to walk in the Spirit. 
And we've seen that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. That these two factions that live inside followers of Christ have absolutely nothing in common. And so when a Christian pursues one or the other, it's easy to tell. It's obvious to tell which desires we're chasing after by the works, by the fruit that manifests themselves in our lives, by the things that we say, the things that we think, the heart conditions that we carry, and the things that we do. In Galatians 5, in this passage that we're going to be talking about today, Paul begins by saying the works of the flesh are evident. Like fruit on a tree, it's obvious to tell what's going on based on the fruit that we produce. And so consider this morning a field guide to freedom, where we're going to learn how to identify the signs in our lives that tell us how we're using our freedom. If we're using our freedom well to serve Christ, or if we're using our freedom poorly to serve ourselves. And we're going to look at three different conflicting characteristics, conflicting traits that can be used to identify which desires that we're gratifying inside our lives and see a little bit about how those impact who we are and what we do. And so our passage this morning comes out of Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. And we say, thanks be to God for his word. Father, we just ask and pray that you would speak to us as we read your word today. And as we talk about the differences between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit, God, I pray that you would give our hearts the desire to constantly and to continually pursue after you so that everything we do would bring you glory and honor, that everything we do would be good for our neighbors as we love our neighbors as ourselves, and everything that we say and think and do would draw us closer and closer to who we're called to be in Christ. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior who sets us free. Amen. The first two conflicting traits we're going to look at are works versus fruit. Works versus fruit. Jesus tells a story, a parable, about someone who is planting seeds, a sower who is out sowing his seeds. And he starts scattering the seeds, and some of the seeds fall on bad ground, on rocky ground, and they never take root, and they wither away, and they die. Some of the seeds fall on good ground and they start to grow up, but some thorns wrap around them and kill the plant and suffocate the plant and it dies. Some of them grow up, but then the scorching sun starts to beat down on them and they wither away. But Jesus says there's some seed that falls on good ground in just the right conditions and that seed begins to grow and it grows into a plant and that plant begins to produce fruit. And fruit is the evidence that that seed has taken root. 
As Paul is talking here about two different ways of living, as two different ways of life, of following the flesh and following the Spirit, he calls these evidences of the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit. And Tim Keller, in his book, Galatians for You, which is a great commentary on Galatians. I've got the whole thing with me today instead of just copying it to my notes. And so if you're looking for something to go along with the study that we've been going through, this is a great book to pick up. It's not very expensive. And he walks through Galatians in a really practical and approachable way. But he talks about this word fruit. And he says, Paul always chooses his images carefully. And it's very revealing that he talks about the acts of a sinful nature but then switches to speak of the fruit of the Spirit. The single word fruit takes us to the world of agriculture, and it tells us some things about how the Spirit works. He says the word fruit shows us that Christian growth is gradual, that it takes time, that it has to take root and has to grow, that it's inevitable, that if we've put our faith in Christ at some point in our lives, these fruits of the Spirit, they're going to start manifesting themselves in our lives because the Spirit is going to work out through us. He says that Christian growth fruit is symmetrical, that all these fruits of the Spirit that we're going to talk about in depth as we keep going through this study, all of those things grow up together. It's not that some people become good lovers and some people become very joyful and some people become very patient, but these fruit of the Spirit grow up inside of us together. But he also says the fruit of the Spirit is internal. That it's something that starts within us. It starts inside of us and then grows externally. And if Paul was that intentional about using the word fruit to describe pursuing after the Spirit, then it's safe to assume that he was just as intentional and found it just as important when he used the word works to describe what happens when we follow the desires of the flesh. The root of the problem when it comes to following one or the other is that the works of the Spirit, they're a result of our effort. They're a result of what we do, while the fruit of the Spirit is a result of something that is planted deep down inside of us. The works of the flesh are something that we take part in, that come out of who we are and that we can accomplish, but the fruit of the Spirit is born out of the seed of salvation that's planted deep down inside of us. And that teaches us a little bit about what salvation is to begin with. Scripture tells us that salvation is something that starts inside of us, that God begins that good work in us through salvation, that God takes our spirit and makes it alive inside of us, and then he begins that process of making us more like Christ, of helping us to grow in our faith and grow on that foundation that he's planted. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we accomplish. It's not something that we do, but something that Christ has done freely for us and on our behalf. But works are just the opposite. The works of the flesh are the things that we try to do to either earn something from God or to accomplish something on our own. And so two of these things that help us to really understand what Paul means when he says works are found in verse 20. We're going to look at all these different works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit in kind of a jumbled order today. But in verse 20, Paul says that two of the works of the flesh are idolatry and sorcery. And in the ESV study Bible, this is what it says about these two words that Paul uses. It says, idolatry and sorcery are evidences of a desire to be in touch with the spiritual realm through humanly invented means. They supposedly have God as their ultimate object, but they reject the revealed way in which he should be worshipped. 
Because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, all other ways to God are false. And so when we talk about these acts of the flesh, this idea of sorcery and idolatry is trying to approach God by some other means. And so sorcery is this idea of trying to approach God by some supernatural abilities that are not given to us through Christ. And so for Paul, he was probably dealing with a lot more real, present sorcery than maybe we experience now. If people trying to use these super spiritual means to achieve some sort of enlightened spirituality, but it happens to us all the time. We want shortcuts to be able to be good spiritual people. We want shortcuts to be able to reach up to God, and that in itself is an act of sorcery. I'm saying, I don't want to wait on God. I don't want to wait on this gradual change in my life that God is starting through this beautiful picture of salvation. But I want to do it myself. I want to be able to figure out a way to reach this pinnacle, to reach this spirituality all on my own. And so we try to take shortcuts and circumvent what God has called us to do. Or sometimes we just go to idolatry which is taking God out of the picture completely and saying, you know what, I'm going to reach for an easier-to-obtain God. I don't like the way that this God is doing everything, so I'm going to reach for the God of money or fame or sexuality or maybe other religions. I'm going to reach for something that seems a little more in my grasp because I don't like the fact that Christianity is about what I do but what Christ does for me, and so I want something that's about me. I want something that I can do. I want something that I can earn, and it becomes a work of the flesh. Works of the flesh are born out of unrest. They're born out of a lack of trust. It's trying to to do everything on our own and accomplish everything in our strength. The works according to the flesh that Paul is talking about here are a complete and total rejection of God's provision in our lives. He talks about a couple other things. Strange little words that pop up here when he says that part of the works of the flesh are drunkenness and orgies. That's a really strange, uncomfortable thing to talk about, but it kind of helps us understand where the works of the flesh come from because the flesh is also greedy. The flesh is also insecure. The flesh also feels like it has to just consume and consume and consume, like some sort of gluttonous monster that lives inside of us that wants to consume until its ultimate end of death. I once read this article about the current trend of modernism in America and in other European countries. Or not modernism, excuse me, minimalism. And so there's this group of people who are just getting rid of all of their stuff. They're getting rid of all their excess clothing, all their excess furniture, all their excess things that are going on in their lives. And they're living very minimalistic lives. And it's really kind of a beautiful thing. It's those Instagram pictures where everything is nice and clean and there's nothing on the walls and the beds are nicely made and there's no furniture anywhere. It's just simple and pure. And we look at that and there's something admirable about it. But this article I was reading pointed out that minimalism is a fad. It's a movement, particularly for people who are wealthy. Because when somebody's wealthy, they're able to look at all their stuff and say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of this. But there's the safety net of the fact that there's money supporting that, that if they get rid of everything and then all of a sudden realize they need all of that back, they can buy it back. Whereas people who don't have that support system of a wealth of money behind it, it's hard to let things go. Because what happens if I get rid of something and I can never get that back? 
What happens if I, I get that out of my life and I don't have the, uh, the ability to afford to buy all the stuff that I need again? It's, a, it's kind of a system of fear, but it's also a system of security. And in the same way, spiritual minimalism is for people who feel rich in Christ. And for those of us, when we feel at our weakest and we feel like we don't have anything else to support us, it becomes easy to hoard all of these other things that help us to feel secure and help us to feel safe. The flesh works in excess, that I have to do as much of this as I can, that I have to take in as much as I want. It's this idea of using these things in our world to their extreme and consuming them as much as possible because there's a fear there that if we don't have it, if Christ is all we have, that maybe Christ won't be enough. And the works of the flesh prove that we don't believe that God has given us enough in Jesus. And so we start to take matters into our own hands and we hoard and we overindulge so that we feel safe and so that we feel secure in what we've done. But then the fruit of the Spirit stand in contrast to that. Paul says some of the fruit of the Spirit are things like peace and like patience. Peace and patience are absolutely contrary to our nature. It's not easy to live at peace. It's not easy to have patience. And this shows us that these characteristics and these traits are born from somewhere else. They're born out of the Spirit of God living inside of us. And when we talk about peace, that we are able to be at peace in all circumstances and have that peace that Paul says that surpasses all understanding, and we're able to be patient for things in our lives, it shows that we're content in what we have in Jesus. That we not only trust God, but we trust in his timing and we trust in his work in our lives. And we don't have to have our own ability to stand and we don't have to have all of this stuff. But Paul also says a fruit of the spirit is self-control. You see, because that we trust in Christ, we no longer have to fill ourselves into the excess because we have Jesus and we believe Jesus is enough. And so because we're free in Christ, we're able to say no. We're able to step back. We're able to control ourselves because we don't have to do everything on our own because Jesus has given us everything that we need. Using our freedom means not acting out of fear and out of a lack of trust, but allowing the Spirit to work in and through us. And as He does, we find that peace, we find that patience, and we find that self-control. It's the difference between works and fruit about trying to do things on our own versus trusting what Christ is doing for us through the Spirit. So we have works and fruit. The next traits we see are self versus community. Self versus community. In Genesis 3, we see the first sin of pride pop up in Scripture. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent is tempting them, and it says that Eve looks at the fruit and she saw that it was pretty, that it looked good, that it was going to be good for eating, and she knew that it could make her more like God. And so that sin is a sin of pride where she thought, you know what, I don't have enough now, but I deserve something more. I want something more. I'm going to take something that doesn't belong to me. But that's not the only sin of pride that we see in Scripture. Think about David with Bathsheba. David sees this woman bathing on her roof, and he decides that that he wants her. The problem is she's married. The problem is she's already with somebody else. But for David, he thought, you know what? I'm the king. 
I'm the king of Israel. There's no one more powerful than me. I have all of this stuff. I have all this money and all this land and all this property. And people fight for me. And so you know what? If I want something, I can take it. And so he was willing to lie. He was willing to cheat. And he was ultimately willing to murder to get what he wants. But really, if we started breaking down every sin that we see in Scripture and every sin that we see take place around us and every sin in our own lives, they all boil down to pride. It's all this desire to step out of our place as who we are, whether we think we deserve something else or we can do anything we want. It's born out of pride. Another key to understanding what these works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit teach us about how we use our freedom is when we look at the desires that push us in those directions. If you start to evaluate your motives, you start to see which side you're falling on. And the works that Paul describes are things that want to gratify the self. They want to lift ourselves up, even at the risk of putting down someone else, even at the risk of seeing relationships broken and wasted in our lives. As long as I can get what I want and get what I need, then that's good enough. At least that's what the flesh tells us. Paul says some of those fruit that illuminate that in our lives are things like enmity, and strife, and jealousy, rivalries, and dissensions, divisions, and envy. All of these negative characteristics that we think are so harmful, but so often are things that overrun our lives. As we constantly find ourselves in conflict with other people, that enmity, putting space and putting division between ourselves and other people. Strife, fighting and struggling with other people to get what we think that we deserve. Things like jealousy and envy, where we're able to look at somebody else and the things that they have or the the place in life they find themselves in, and we think, you know what? I deserve that. That's the life that I want. That's the life that I need. I deserve that, not them. And we start to harbor negative emotions and feelings towards other people. Rivalries and dissensions. Looking at people as other looking at people as separate from ourselves and as enemies standing in our way to what we want and being willing to spend our lives fighting them, and then divisions, the brokennesses in our relationship. All of these things are born out of the flesh, wanting to desire itself more than caring about other people. All of these things are born when we use our freedoms to gratify me instead of laying these freedoms down for the sake of other people. See, the works of the flesh are evident because they leave a trail behind them. The works of the flesh leave in their wake a trail of broken relationships. They leave in their wake a trail of burned bridges and tears of people that we have used our freedom to hurt and to put down instead of loving them and caring for them as we're called to do in Christ because of our selfish desires. And so one good way to understand, am I following the Spirit or am I following Christ, is to look at our lives. And if we find ourselves constantly in the midst of drama, if we find ourselves constantly in the midst of broken relationships, if we find ourselves constantly full of jealousy or aggression towards other people, it's time to ask, who am I worshiping? It's time to ask ourselves, where are my desires finding their source? Am I pursuing after Christ or is this all about me? But the fruit of the Spirit have another emphasis. 
They have another focus. Because Paul says the fruit of the Spirit are things like kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. When Paul talks about these kind of fruit, this kindness and faithful and gentleness, these are healing fruits. These are life-giving fruits. These are fruits of reconciliation in our lives. And when we put these things into practice, they do the opposite of the works of the flesh. Instead of destroying people and destroying relationships, they bring reconciliation and life into people, and they bring healing to other people. You see, the same desires inside of us that cause us to hoard and cause us to consume to excess, those things lead to autonomy in our lives. Those things lead to self-indulgence in our lives, that I am the only thing that matters, that I'm the most important thing in my world. And this thought process is not only wrong, it's not only sinful, it's anti-Christian. It's the complete and polar opposite of who we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit has a desire to see other people prosper. It leads us to want to have deep and meaningful and costly relationships. It leads us to want to treat others as we want to be treated. Because don't we want to be treated with kindness? We would far prefer kindness over harshness. We want to be treated with faithfulness. We want to know that when we're in a relationship with somebody, when we have a bond with somebody, that they're going to be faithful to us, that they're going to be loyal to us, that they're going to be caring for us. We want that to be done for us, and so we should want that for others as well. And I know I want people to treat me gently. I'm sick right now, like head cold, not real sick, but just enough sick to feel bad. And there's a lot of times when people talk about men when they get sick and they're kind of crybabies. That one's not me. When I get sick, I become horribly mean and aggressive and cranky, and I make mean faces that resemble my, my eight-month-old. If you haven't seen her face, she's often got a very just judgmental look on her tiny little face, and that becomes my face, and I get angry and cranky, and I lash out at people, and I say things that I probably shouldn't, and say things that I don't mean, and in those moments when I'm weak, and when I fall, and when I stumble, I pray that people treat me gently. I pray that people don't hold that against me. I pray that people can look past my weaknesses. And so I need to be able to do that exact same thing for other people as well. And when I say it's anti-Christian, I mean it is. When we act in that way that follows the flesh, it is completely contrary to what Christ came to do for us. Because Scripture tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That it's the faithfulness of God that saves us and keeps us saved. And when we don't act very saved, that God deals gently with us even though we don't deserve it. And the Spirit calls us to reflect Christ in everything that we do by sharing the kindness of God with other people. By sharing the faithfulness of God with other people in our relationships. And dealing gently with everyone in our lives. And that fruit of the Spirit leads to the good of others while the fruit or the works of the flesh lead to our own self-edification and our own self-glorification. So we have works versus fruit. We have self versus community. And then finally, we can look at the difference between the image of me and the image of God. The image of me and the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this beautiful picture of God as creator. And as God gets to the point where he's ready to create people, when he's ready to create humanity, the climax of this creation 
story. He starts speaking. He says, let us make man in our image. And then that follows with this beautiful poem that says, so he created them in his own image. Male and female, he created them in his own image. He created them just over and over again, this beautiful reminder that God created us in his own image. That the ultimate purpose of humanity is to reflect God's character and God's goodness all across the world. And when he created us like that, the end of the chapter says he saw everything that he was made, including people, and it was very good. But then something changed. Not too long after that, we see sin enter the world. And as sin entered the world, that image of God that we were created in, something happened to it. And what sin did is it, it didn't come in and erase the image of God and humanity. It did something far worse. Sin came in like pollution in a river. And while the river may look the same, that pollution has made it something completely different, something deadly and something destructive. Sin came into the lives of all humanity and took that beautiful image of God that we were created in and it changed it and it marred it and it perverted it and it made it something much worse than we could have ever imagined. It made it into our own image. See, the way that we use our freedom shows not only ourselves, but shows the world around us who we want to be. It shows the image that we want to be made in. We're taught very clearly that who the Son sets free is free indeed. And that freedom that comes in the life of the Christian means that we have a choice. And the way that we choose to use our freedom reveals the object of our chief affection. It reveals the one that we worship. It reveals who our God really is. A pastor friend of mine was talking about the Ten Commandments. And he pointed out that part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments in the life of the Israelite people was to set them apart and show them who they worship. And these Ten Commandments were things that when the Israelite people would live them out, it would reflect the character of God to everyone that they encountered. And in the same way as Paul rattles off these fruit of the Spirit, that is their purpose. It's to reflect the image of God in our lives. And so when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, we're reminded of the truth that God does not just love, but that God is love. And so that when we love in the way that God loves us, we are not just reflecting the love of God, we're reflecting God himself. When we live lives filled with joy, we show that God is powerful and God is sovereign over all of our circumstances and that we worship and celebrate a God who rejoices over the good things that he's made. When we live lives of goodness, we're putting on display for the world the fact that we serve a God who is good who is completely and totally good in the truest sense of the word. In fact, he defines the word for us. But these fruit of the or these works of the flesh aren't simply opposites of God's character, but they're perversions of it. He starts listing these things like sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. He talks about fits of anger. And when we look at those things, we find that they are corrupt replacements for the image of God in our lives. And so what we do is we take love and we replace that with sexual immorality. 
We take love, the way that we're supposed to love other people as Christ loves us, and instead we start looking at people as objects, as nothing more as pieces to give us some sort of gratification in our own lives. We take things like goodness and righteousness, and we substitute and instead impurity and fits of anger. Impurity is taking those good things like injecting pollution into the water, taking good things that God has given us, like again sexuality, and turning it into something that's more of a God and something that's more for our own self-gratification instead of a good thing that God has given us. These fits of anger take righteousness, a characteristic that we're supposed to carry, that when we see injustice, when we see sin in the world and in our own lives, when we see the broken things in the world, it should break our hearts, but there should also be an element of righteous anger behind it. But we take that righteousness, we take that righteous anger, and we turn it into fits of rage. We start looking at things and the things that we don't like and the things that don't fit our narrative and the things that make us uncomfortable. We start lashing out at them, not because we want what's right in the world, but because we want what's fair to us. And we think that we should be the gods of our own circumstance. And so it makes us angry when we're not. We take joy and we substitute it for sensuality. We become much more focused on temporary happiness instead of an everlasting joy. And so whether we can find that in our sexuality, whether we can find that in money, whether we can find that in power, whether we find that in relationships, whether we find that in some sort of vice or sin, we find all of these ways to find momentary happiness in the midst of difficult circumstances instead of looking to Christ to find joy in all circumstances. We start to make an idol out of our own image. And when we do, it's nothing but a cheap and broken counterfeit of the one true God. And that is a dangerous, dangerous idol to create. We were created to reflect the image of God. And so the works of the flesh aren't just sins. They are a rejection of our purpose. They're a rejection of the design that God created us with. But thankfully, God gave us Christ. And what Jesus did when he brought us salvation, that anyone who puts their faith in Christ and repents of their sin, Jesus starts the process of restoring the image of God in us, of taking that broken puzzle that we've scattered all over the floor, and he starts putting those pieces back together, and he sets us free so that we can love without condition so that we can be good and so that we can do good and reflect the goodness of God. And so we don't have to worry about being temporarily happy, but in all circumstances, whether rich or poor, sick or in health, whether we are in a good mood or a terrible mood, that we can find joy in all circumstances. That's what Christ came to do. That's what the fruit of the Spirit are. And so why would we ever want to trade that in for something that is ultimately worth nothing? for temporary pleasures that will pass away instead of an eternal hope that we have in Christ and an unconditional love that we see given to us through God. When Paul says the desires of the flesh and the spirit are opposite to one another, he absolutely means it. We have to take our call to walk by the spirit and to use our freedom well very seriously. And so what that means is that we daily review the evidence in our lives. 
That we come and we confess our sins before God so that we can start thinking, man, where are the places that I'm following my flesh? Where are the places that I'm not loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Where are the places that I'm not loving my neighbor as myself? Where are the things that I'm doing things that are directly against the character and nature of God and the purpose that he's called me to? And where are the places that I'm not doing the things that do reflect the grace and mercy of God? And we start to evaluate the evidence. In the places where we're following the Spirit, we put more time and more effort and more energy into those things so that we become more and more like Christ. And the places that gratify the flesh, we start to make war with those things so they have no power over us, so they don't put us back into slavery. The works of the flesh are very evident. And they're out to destroy us from the inside out. But the fruit of the Spirit is there to work for you and through you and in you to bring life to you, to bring good to those around you, and to help you worship the God who has been set free. I want to read a quote by one of my former students. She posted this last night and thought it just fit really perfectly. Her name is Lauren Wilson. She said, Jesus died for us to live in freedom. And no matter how many reasons the world gives you to feel alone, depressed, anxious, insecure, and just completely hopeless, the choice is ultimately yours. Whether you choose to live in bondage of those evils or to live in the freedom God graciously bestows upon us and desires us to accept. When you choose the freedom over bondage, you'll find the purest of joys and love. Let's pursue those things with everything that we have. Over the next few weeks, we're going to leave the works of the flesh in the rearview mirror, and we're going to start looking in depth at the things that we're called to pursue. Next week, we're going to look at one small phrase when Paul says, against such things there is no law. And we're going to look at what it means to take the excess of the works of the flesh and put those aside and start overly consuming as much of the fruit of the Spirit as we can and learn how to be people who love without condition, learn how to be people who are joyful when it doesn't make sense, to have patience in all circumstances, to be kind and gentle and good and all of these things and use them as much and as often as we possibly can. And then after that, we're going to go one by one through the fruit of the Spirit, and look at what they mean in depth and how we put this into practice in our lives, how we become people who love well, who are joyful, who have peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so I want to encourage you to be thinking and praying, and all of us together to be focusing on how we can pursue the Spirit and leave those works of the flesh behind so that we can do what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Let's pray.